محمدًا رسول الله ويقيدي أدنو إليه ساجدًا بجبيني اقبل صلاتي وللصواب الديني والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد In our last halaqa, we had discussed the uh, establishment of the treaty of the people of Medina. We called it the early constitution. And uh, we pointed out that it was a very forward-thinking document. There was nothing similar to it. Uh, frankly, there was nothing similar to it in the entire world at the time, where the Prophet ﷺ gave each of the uh, religious groups semi-independence, and he then put some bonds between them that were more political in nature. And uh, this shows us that from the Islamic perspective, the bonds of the ummah and the bonds of a religion are stronger than the bonds of uh, the nation state or the bonds of ethnicity. And this is a philosophical tangent which we don't have time to get into now. I've spoken about this at length in other places. The modern world is divided into nation states. In the modern world, we are told to view each other based upon our nationality. Uh, Americans, Canadians, Britishers, Mexicans, Australians, Nicaraguans, every these, all of these different countries. And we are told that this is the strongest bond. But if you really think about it, the bonds of the nation state are actually uh, pretty imaginary because there's nothing that combines people of one nationality other than that nationality. And this is a very philosophical point, but it's very true. What makes uh, a person of a particular nationality the same as anybody else? Let's look at America, or let's look at Canada. What is the one thing common in all Americans? Is it language? Is it religion? Is it skin color? Is it ethnicity? Is it food? There's hardly anything, right? In fact, the only thing that is common is the fact that we're American, which is a circular loop. And so the whole way that the modern world is structured, yani they make fun of us for saying that you guys still view the religion as being the primary factor. But wallahi, think about it logically. The religion gives us so many things in common. It gives us the same ethics, the same values, the same philosophy of living, the same morality, the same language. We have a divine language. We have one qibla, which we're going to talk about today, right? We have similar signs. We have a calendar. We have uh, th that which is genuinely important, not superficial skin color, ethnicity, spiciness and food. This is nothing that's important. But how you live your life, right? Your morals, your qiyam, your values. Isn't this the most important thing? And therefore, if you really think about it, and wallahi, I have tried my best to think about every attack they give of Islam. And the more that I think about it, the more logical the Islamic position always seems to be, right? And this is something, uh, again, beyond the scope here, but when the Prophet ﷺ came to Medina, he got rid of the, uh, the Aus and the Khazraj mentality. He got rid of the mentalities of Jahiliyyah. But he retained Yahud, Muslim, Mushrik. And he put the Yehud, you are one Ummah, he said, along with the believers, right? Well, Yehudu Ummatan Ma'al Muslimin. You're one Ummah, we're one Ummah. And so he divided people based upon not their skin color, not their ethnicity, not their race, but their religious values. And wallahi, that is the most logical way to divide any person or any community up because your values, because your religion, which is what give you, gives you values, is the most important uh, framework from which you live your life. Right? If you think about this. And so the Prophet the first thing he did, he said, look, you are one ummah, we are one ummah. And then he allowed them to judge according to their own laws. And this is amazing. What country in the world, other than one or two, and even that in some areas, right? I mentioned two of them. 
last week, India and Israel uh, are the only two countries that I'm aware of that still have somewhat this type of philosophy that the Prophet put in, right? In that depending on what your religion is, you will get a different civil law. But the Prophet went more than civil law. He in fact gave them semi-independence. And he said, even if anything occurs amongst you, to the level of murder, what not, you guys deal with it internally. Unless it's the two groups that are fighting one another, now we have to go external. But otherwise, there was, for all practical purposes, complete independence within their own ummah. And this is something that is unparalleled and unprecedented in any constitution. What would this do? If the Yehud, of course the Mushrikun were given this, but then they fizzled off, right? The Mushrikun, they dissolved away. There were no pagans after a year. So this contract has one or two clauses about the Mushrikun, but then they're gone, so khalas, there goes. So there's only two ummas left, the Muslims and the Yehud. And if the Yehud had fulfilled their part of the bargain, they would have become the most industrious, the most successful Yehud community in the whole world. Because there were, the, the, the Yehud were always in the diaspora. They were always in small groups here and there. And if they had stuck to the treaty, the Muslims would have become more powerful, and along with them, the Yehud would also become more powerful. The Muslims would have gained wealth, they would have gained wealth. Instead, they did not appreciate that freedom. Never had they been given that much freedom that the Prophet ﷺ told them, do as you please amongst yourselves. It is as if you're completely independent. You basically have your semi-independent state. That's how much he gave them, right? And yet, uh, as we know, and this is a very... Uh, sensitive issue, but we need to tackle it head on. Uh, as we said before, the accusations of anti-Semitism are given, but we do not believe this is anti-Semitism. We believe that this is because they did what they did, not because of who they are. And there's a big difference, right? And we're going to talk about this, inshallah, today a little bit, and for the next few months, we're going to have to always bring this up. So, we talked about the issue of uh, this division, and we mentioned uh, the Prophet ﷺ dividing them based upon their religion. The next major incident that the books of Sirah mention takes place a few months after this, and we don't have any major incident that occurs. As I said, the Sirah is like a series of snapshots. What happens in between is usually blank. Not every day is recorded. At least seven, eight months go by, we don't really hear anything significant happening. Then what happens? The change of Qibla occurs. The change of Qibla. So this is the next major incident that the books of Sirah uh, mention. And uh, the change of Qibla probably occurred around 15 to 16 months after the immigration. Probably 15 to 16 months, so around a year and a half or a bit less, around this time. After the hijrah of the Prophet wasallam, And this caused a mini crisis. Why? For many reasons. Firstly, because this was the first time that Allah had abrogated a ruling. The concept of abrogation, the concept of naskh in Arabic, is a concept that was new to the Muslims and to the non-Muslims. What is naskh? Naskh means abrogation. Abrogation means Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals a law, and then He reveals another law that abrogates the first law. And this is a detailed topic of usul al-fiqh, or the realities of deriving fiqh. A uh, classic example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed in the Qur'an, we still recited to the day Surah Al-Baqarah, that those women whose husbands die, they shall wait one month. Sorry, one year. They shall wait one year, right, before they get remarried, right? So the Sharia came down, or the Qur'an came down, that one entire year, the woman shall not get remarried. Few 
months or years later, the exact timing is not known between these two revelations, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala abrogated the year. And He then put in place the ruling that we're all familiar with, and that is, Arba'ata ashurin wa ashra, four months and ten days. Right? So there is, to this day, two verses in the Qur'an. You cannot apply both of them. There is a direct clash. We don't call it a contradiction because there's no contradiction in, in Nasr and there's no contradiction in the Qur'an. There, there is abrogation. Abrogation because one of these laws we just recite, we don't actually implement. So there's no contradiction. This is a clear case of abrogation. And the concept of abrogation is something that uh, we as Ahl-Sunnah affirm, some of the other groups deny. The Shia, for example, deny abrogation. The Mu'tazila deny abrogation. They say there's no such thing. And they try to reinterpret all of these verses. Uh, but uh, as for Ahl-Sunnah, we affirm abrogation. And there are uh, more than a dozen examples uh, authentically mentioned in our books of Fiqh and Sirah. The first time abrogation occurred, we'll talk about it today. That is the Qibla. Why? Because initially, the Prophet ﷺ was told to pray facing Jerusalem, Bayt al-Maqdis. And throughout his entire period in Mecca, the Prophet continued to pray towards Bayt al-Maqdis. It is reported in some of the books, for example, Ibn Sa'ad's Tabaqat and Al-Hakim's Mustadrak, that whenever the Prophet prayed in Mecca, facing Jerusalem, he would in fact put the Kaaba in front of him. So he has a double Qibla basically, right? That he would always pray on that one side of the Kaaba, that faces Jerusalem. So whenever he would pray, because you can pray anywhere in Mecca, if you're facing Jerusalem, you don't have to face the Qibla, you don't have to face the, the, our Qibla, their Qibla, or the previous Qibla was, uh, was Jerusalem. Yet every time the Prophet prayed, he would situate himself such that the Kaaba was in front of him, and Baytul Maqdis was in that direction, and therefore it was as if he wanted to pray facing uh, the Kaaba, and he continued to pray in this direction. Now, Baytul Maqdis, we've already talked about the blessings of Baytul Maqdis uh, a few weeks ago when we talked about Isra wal Mi'raj and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, uh, حوله, This is a blessed land. And the Prophet praised uh, Bilad al Sham in so many hadith. And it, is, uh, it was the holiest land before uh, the Prophet came. Ibrahim السلام, had made Mecca the holiest land, but this ruling had not been for the Yahud. This ruling had been for Ismail and the children of Ismail. So for the Yahud, they thought the holiest land, and the Yahud were basically the largest group of worshippers of Allah on earth at that time. The Yahud and then after them the Christians always thought that Baytul Maqdis was the holiest land. And they were not familiar with Mecca to this day, they don't consider Mecca to be sacred because that was uh, something that Allah blessed Ibrahim and Ismail with. By the way, I mentioned this way back before. Many of the prophets, including Musa, made Hajj to Mecca. We know this because our Prophet told us. But these are the prophets, not their followers. Their followers did not come to Mecca as far as we know. There is no indication that any of the followers of the Prophets came. But the Prophets themselves came because Allah told them about Mecca. And Allah told them to do Hajj. So they came and did Hajj. Over 70 Prophets came and did Hajj. But not the followers of the Prophets. So for the followers of the Prophets, they considered Baytul Maqdis to be the holiest. When the Prophet ﷺ came, Allah wanted to show that he is following the real religion of Ibrahim ﷺ. So he wanted to resurrect the original Qibla. Because that is the first Qibla. Remember, The first 
house that was ever built of worship was Bakka. And our Prophet was asked, what is the first masjid ever built on earth? He said, the Kaaba, Baytullah. And then he said, what was the next? He said, Baytul Maqdis. He was asked, Kam kana baynuhuma? what was the time between them? And he said, 40 years between them. There was 40 years between Ibrahim building the Kaaba and then either Ishaq or Ya'qub, it is a difference of opinion who, but somebody built something in Baytul Maqdis, not not the Haikal Sulaiman, that was of course many uh, centuries later, but someone, either Ishaq or uh, Ya'qub, built something. Allahu alam what it was, and that is the place of Baytul Maqdis. 40 years difference. So Allah Azza wa wanted to show the status of uh, the Kaaba, the status of the, the first house. However, when the Prophet emigrated to Medina, now the Qibla is still Baytul Maqdis. And Medina is due north of Mecca. Medina is due north of Mecca. And Baytul Maqdis is due north of Medina. It's a straight line. And so, if you want to pray facing Baytul Maqdis, you have to turn your back to the Kaaba. It's literally, literally 180 degrees. And so the Prophet has to follow the Sharia. At that time, the, 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 the ruling came down that it must be facing Baytul Maqdis. Now, by the way, Naskh or abrogation doesn't have to be Quran with Quran. The Quran can abrogate the Sunnah, the Sunnah can abrogate the Quran, the Sunnah can abrogate the Sunnah, and the Quran can abrogate the Quran. Four logical possibilities. Cross abrogation can occur. The, the ruling to pray towards Baytul Maqdis, Allah had revealed it in the Sunnah, it's not in the Quran. But it is still a part of the Sharia. So the Muslims were praying facing Baytul Maqdis. And the Prophet when he moved to Medina, he had to face north, turn his back towards the uh, Kaaba. Now, what happened was, and we're going to talk about this next few lessons, not today. Uh, what happened was, the tensions began between the Prophet and the Yehud. For the next year from the Hijrah, tensions began. And we'll talk about this uh, towards yani after Ramadan basically, but just a little bit of an uh, introduction to this concept. When the Prophet first emigrated to Medina, he's finally amongst a group of people who believe in the Abrahamic faith. In Mecca, there's nobody who's a Jew or a Christian. In Mecca, they're all idol worshippers, pagans, idolaters. In Medina, he's finally amongst a large group. There were a few thousand, we said, of the Yehud. A large group who believe in the same God who believe in the same line of prophets. The Quraysh didn't even know what is a prophet, right? They said, what is a prophet? We never saw, what is this thing called a prophet? We never heard of one. The Quraysh didn't believe in a book. They didn't say, what is, they have no concept of what is a book, right? And by the way, anybody who's tried to give da'wah, I speak with a little bit of experience, to Hindus versus to Christians and Jews, you see the difference, right? People who don't have a concept of, yani, Risala, Nubuwa, Akhira, Jannah wa Nar. You know, they have no concept. Wallahi, it's so different, so difficult to give da'wah to them. That God sends prophets, like they don't even understand the concept. Why would God send a person? Right? And the Quraysh asked the same thing. And the, to this day, pagans ask the same thing. Whereas the Ahli Kitab, they are so close to us in so many things. They, the, the concepts, the Arkan Sitta, they're there, but except a little bit of fine-tuning is needed, right? They believe in God, they believe in the angels, they believe in the hereafter, they believe in heaven and hell, they believe in uh, the books coming down, they believe in the concept of prophets. So, for the first time, the Prophet is intermixing with 
a group that believes in all of this. And his heart was very optimistic that finally a large group will convert because why not? They have been waiting for a prophet. They know that, that uh, they're waiting for a prophet. We know this. They know that I'm the prophet, right? Allah says in the Quran, they recognized him as they recognized their own children. They recognized the Prophet as they recognized their own children. Right? And subhanAllah, what a, uh, a beautiful verse. Only parents will understand this, right? You recognize your child, wallahi, if he's just crying in the back. You know immediately this is my kid, right? You know immediately if you see your child far away, you'll recognize him no matter how far away, how, what clothes he's wearing, you'll immediately recognize your child. And Allah is saying, يَعْرِفُونَهُ They recognize the Prophet as well as they recognize their own children. Now the Prophet knew that they recognized him. So why shouldn't he be optimistic? Right? Why shouldn't he be hopeful? And also remember, Abdullah ibn Salam, their main rabbi, converted. And so this is even more reason to make him uh, optimistic. So, uh, Aisha also narrates that when the Prophet first came to Medina, this is an interesting hadith which shows us a little bit about the psychology at this time. The Prophet wanted to resemble them as much as possible. To make them feel comfortable. Right? He wanted to resemble them as much as possible. Outwardly, do whatever needed to be done to show them that we're the same basically. But as the tensions increased, eventually he began commanding the Muslims to dissociate from them. To be different from them. Right? And so there are so many ahadith, khaliful yahud, khaliful nasara, khaliful ahl al-kitab. There's so many ahadith, be different from the yahud. Don't do like the yahud in this, right? Don't be like them. In the beginning it was the opposite. There was rulings to be like them, to make them feel comfortable, to make them feel similar. But when it was clear that they had made up their minds that no, we know he's the prophet but we're not going to follow. What happened? They became arrogant. When they became arrogant, then... The Prophet started giving different rulings, and there are so many ahadith, uh, you know, so much so, so much so, even where you part the hair, even where you part the hair, that the Prophet said, they parted on this side, you parted on that side. Now this is of course specific to those people that they had a style, said don't even be like that, right? He said, hadith is in Bukhari, the Yahud don't pray with their shoes on, so pray with your shoes on. Now don't follow this hadith in the masjid, Right, we are walking, somebody comes in stamping the feet. When you're outside on the grass, when you're outside somewhere in the field, yes. In fact, it is not proper to take your shoes off at that point in time. Right? Because you're supposed to. The Prophet said, Khaliful Yahud. Right? They don't uh, pray in their ni'alim, so sallu fi ni'alikum. You pray in your shoes and with your shoes. This is a hadith in Bukhari. And why is that? Because the Yahud have a hadith that they always have to take their shoes off. And so even in this, he wants to be different. Right? The Prophet said the Yahud don't uh, touch their women in the menses and don't do anything. You eat with them, you sit with them, do everything other than the actual active intimacy. Be different from them. So our Sharia came to be totally different from that of the Yahud wherever Allah wanted it to be different. Why? Because of this because of this arrogance. So one of those things to be different came down as the qibla. And the Prophet, after a year of this hostility, 
We'll talk about that hostility later on. We're, uh, we'll talk about the Yehud in much more detail because we really do have to go bit by bit to answer the charges that the non-Muslims give to the Prophet. As I said many times, there's two or three very sensitive areas and because we live in America, we must give justice to these topics. Number one is the treatment of the Jews. Number two is the accusation that the Prophet was a military, uh, always military commander and leader and he's always wa waging war. We need to talk about this. Number three is like uh, women's issues like marriage and whatnot, uh, marriage to Aisha, all of this we need to talk about and explain uh, in a way that will defend our Prophet and being fair to our tradition. So now is not the time to get into the Yehud, we'll talk about them later. But when all of this animosity is beginning, the Prophet began wanting to change the Qibla. Now the Qibla, Allah Azza had told him to face Baytul Maqdis. So he cannot change it of his own will. And it is narrated that once when Jibreel came down with some Quran, the Prophet expressed his hope to Jibreel that, O oh Jibreel, I wish to pray facing Mecca. He even told this to Jibreel. I wish to pray facing Mecca. And Jibreel said that, Innama ana abdun mithluk. I am an abd just like you. And I only come with the Amr of Allah Azza wa I can't help you out here. If you want this, make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. SubhanAllah, look at the most powerful human is asking the most powerful angel, right? The most blessed human being who ever walked. The face of the earth is asking the most blessed inhabitant of the sky. And both of them say, I can't do anything. I'm not responsible, you need to go ask Allah Azza wa Jal, right? And SubhanAllah, how misguided are those then who turn to these two for dua and for worship? How misguided are they? When both the Prophet and Jibreel, they cannot even change the Qibla. Jibreel is saying, Innama ana abdun mithluk, right? I'm an abd like you, I don't have any control. If you really want it, make dua to Allah, and if He tells me, I'll come down. Otherwise, it's not in my hands. So, the Prophet wasallam began making dua earnestly, in tahajjud, at night, in the day. So much so that he was looking up to the sky. And looking up to the sky is only done in du'as at times of extreme distress. Usually the Prophet would in fact lower his head. Right? But on specific occasions when the situation called for it, he would raise his head up to the sky. For example, before the battle of Badr, he, would, he looked up to the sky. And he implored and begged Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, for help. And this is the most famous time he ever did this in public. Very rarely did he look up to the sky. And doing so is a sign of extreme desperation. And therefore the Prophet did this. But he did it at night when nobody was looking. How do we know he did it? Because Allah revealed it in the Quran. قَدْ نَرَى تَقَلُّبَ وَجْهِكَ فِي السَّمَاءِ Allah revealed it in the Quran in verses that we recite to this day. We have seen. تَقَلُّبَ wajhik, Your face turning up sama, Always looking up to the skies. You're always looking up, making dua to Allah. فَلَنُوَلِّيَنَّكَ قِبْلَةً تَرْضَاهَا So let it be decreed, we will face you in a direction that you want. Notice, Allah had already decreed it's going to go to Mecca. But Allah is saying, I know you wanted it, this is my gift to you. He didn't have to phrase the Qur'an this way, right? That because you want it, it will please you, I'm giving it to you. This is what the Prophet is being told. Not that I have decreed it's Mecca, but rather to show that the, the, the desire of the Prophet is indeed one that Allah Azza wa wants uh, to give this to. 
to Allah Azza wa Jal says, فَلَنُوَلِّيَنَّكَ قِبْلَةً تَرْضَاهَا We're going to change your face. We're going to cause you to turn to a direction that you want, that you like, that shall please you. فَوَلِّ وَجْهَكَ شَطْرَ الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ So from now on, turn your face in the direction of Masjid Al-Haram. وَحَيْثُ مَا كُنْتُمْ فَوَلُّ وُجُوهَكُمْ شَطْرَةً And wherever you are, then turn your face in that direction. And Allah Azza wa Jal then revealed multiple verses. This is of course in the second juz of the Quran, Surah Al-Baqarah. The first two pages of the second juz are all dealing with the uh, change of the uh, Qibla. Now, when all of these verses came down, uh, and as I said, this came down uh, in this 16, 17, 15 months roughly. Some say Rajab of the second year, some say uh, Sha'ban of the second year. Uh, Rajab and Sha'ban, right? And remember, Badr was in Ramadan. So Badr is still one month away. The battle of Badr is one month away. Uh, so this happened like a month or two before uh, the battle of Badr. And when this command came down, this command proved to be a great source of confusion for everyone. The Muslims, the Yahud, and the Mushrikun. It was confusing. Why was it confusing? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran why it was confusing. Allah says, سَيَقُولُ السُّفَهَاءُ مِنَ النَّاسِ مَا وَلَّاهُمْ عَنْ قِبْلَتِهِمُ الَّتِي كَانُوا عَلَيْهَا The Sufaha, the foolish people, will begin questioning. Why have they turned away from the Qibla that they were upon? How come they're changing directions? One of them said, uh, one of the Yahud said, if this man is a prophet, how come he's praying one day facing uh, south, uh, uh, one day facing north and the other day facing south? Why is he changing his mind all the time? Another said, another of them said, that isn't our Qibla good enough for him? Isn't our Qibla good enough for him? We have the best Qibla. Why is he changing it to another Qibla? And so, people began talking. Of course, the issue of abrogation itself was new. And Allah Azza wa Jal therefore revealed in Surah Al-Baqarah the concept of abrogation. Remember, Surah Al-Baqarah is the first of the major surahs to be revealed in Medina. Right? So Surah Al-Baqarah provides us the first year and a half. It mentions uh, Badr, it mentions the change of Qibla, it mentions uh, a lot about the Yahud. Think about that. Why does it talk so much about the Yahud? Because this is when they needed to know all of this information, right? Surah Al-Baqarah is full of Bani Israel and Musa and what happened. Why is this? Because this is the context that it is needed for. In Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah mentions the concept of Naskh, abrogation. مَا نَنْسَخْ مِنْ آيَةٍ أَوْ نُنْسِهَا نَأْتِ بِخَيْرٍ مِنْهَا أَوْ مِثْلِهَا Whenever we abrogate a ruling, or we cause it to be lost or forgotten, we then bring forth something better than it, or at least something equivalent to it. So there's a wisdom behind our abrogation. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions, وَمَا جَعَلْنَا الْقِبْلَةَ الَّتِي كُنْتَ عَلَيْهَا إِلَّا لِنَعْلَمَ مَنْ يَتَّبِعُ الرَّسُولَ مِمَّنْ يَنْقَلِبُ عَلَىٰ عَقِبَيْهِ The only reason, that or one of the main reasons, وَمَا جَعَلْنَا الْقِبْلَةَ لِكُنْتَ عَلَيْهَا We wanted to test those who followed the Prophet versus those who rejected the Prophet. So every commandment is a test. Every commandment is a test, whether you follow it or not, whether you obey it or not. For the Muslims, it was a test to see whether they implemented this new ruling from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Of course they did. For the Yahud, it was a clear sign. There was a hidden message for the Yahud. There was a hidden message for the Yahud. And that was as follows. This prophet came in the line of your prophets. So he's facing your qibla. 
But he shall now supersede your prophethood line. And he shall take it back to the original. So he's not coming from a different tradition. He too is from the same tradition. Because if Allah had willed, the change of Qibla would have been in Mecca. But Allah Azza wa wanted to demonstrate for a year and a half, the Muslims are praying in the same direction as the Yahud. And then Allah Azza wa changes it to Mecca. What is the purpose? The purpose, multiple fold, but primarily to demonstrate to the Jews that this Prophet is from the same tradition as your religion. And he venerates the same icons that we have told you to venerate. You were supposed to pray towards Bayt al-Maqdis, he will also pray towards Bayt al-Maqdis. But he is not just a Jewish prophet. He is more than this. Why? Because remember, the Yahud, they thought they were exclusive. Correct? They thought, they, they still think there's an exclusive. They're the chosen people. We believe they were chosen, by the way. We should not deny this. But the key is that they were chosen. Right? That's the emphasis. The key is on they were a chosen people. Well, like some Muslims in their blindness or anger, they, they even go against the Quran or Sunnah here. Uh, the Yahud, Allah Azza wa says in multiple verses, right? Stafakum ala al-alamin. Is that uh, we have preferred you over all of the people of their time. So the Yahud were the chosen race, yes. But they were in the past. And Allah Azza wa wanted to demonstrate that this is going to cease now. It's going to finish now. And how was that demonstration? Through multiple ways, but primarily through the change of the uh, Qibla. And uh, the, the Jews then began saying that anybody who faces any direction other than Baytul Maqdis, Allah will never be pleased with him. And Allah will not accept from him. And they said it is a part of piety to face Jerusalem. And to this day, they all face in that direction when they pray. Even many of the Christian groups, not all of them, but many of the... In fact, in our days, Protestant Christianities have completely lost this. But Orthodox and Eastern Orthodox and other ancient Christianities, they generally face East. And some of them still have that they're going to face uh, Jerusalem. So they said, you have to face in that direction. At this, Allah revealed, لَيْسَ الْبِرَّ أَن وَجُوهَكُمْ قِبْلَ الْمَشْرِقِ وَالْمَغْرِبِ Piety is not in which direction you face. It's not which direction. And this also shows, by the way, as we know, uh, some groups of Jews, their main emphasis is the law. There's very little theology and spirituality. It's all about observance of the law. And Allah says, it's not piety to face East or West. Real piety is what's inside. The spirituality to believe in Allah and the final day. And to give to the poor. And to uh, go, and uh, Allah Azza wa mentions a whole list of good deeds. Right? The point is Allah Azza wa criticized the Yahud for saying, you must be following this law in order to be pious. And Allah says, no, east or west, Whichever direction you turn, Allah Azza wa is there. Meaning, Allah Azza wa will accept all of the directions you pray, whichever direction the Qibla is, as long as, of course, you are following the commandments of Allah. And in fact, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and again, all of this, by the way, is in the same page, which is the second juz of the Quran, that first page uh, of the second juz, that, وَلَئِنْ أَتَيْتَ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابَ بِكُلِّ آيَةٍ مَا تَبِعُوا قِبْلَتَكَ That if you were to bring every sign to the people of the book, they would never follow your Qibla. The Prophet is being consoled. Don't worry. They don't want to follow your Qibla. 
وَمَا أَنْتَ بِتَابِعٍ قِبْلَتَهُمْ And you are not going to follow their qibla. وَمَا بَعْضُهُمْ بِتَابِعٍ قِبْلَةَ بَعْضٍ And they themselves don't follow each other's qibla. The Jews have a qibla, the Christians have a different qibla. So Allah Azza wa Jalla is consoling the Prophet Don't worry if they don't follow your qibla, you have your qibla and they have their qibla and Allah Azza wa Jalla has chosen the best for you. And even for the mushrikun, it was a, confuse, a confusion and a slander. What type of prophet is this? He keeps on changing his mind. Uh, but for them as well, there was a hidden message that the Prophet was expelled from Mecca and he then respected the Kaaba more than the Quraysh did by making it the center of his direction of ibadah and focus and by purifying his worship for Allah so the Quraysh are being told that you are not worthy to be custodians of the Kaaba. That our Prophet Muhammad will be the one who inherits the Kaaba and resurrects the prestige that it had in the time of Ibrahim because you have failed in this message. So in the change of the Qibla, there were multiple messages being given to the Yahud and to the uh, Quraysh. There's also an interesting theological point that occurred. And that is, when the Qibla change occurred, the Muslims asked a question to the Prophet and they said, O Messenger of Allah, what will happen to those who prayed facing Baytul Maqdis and then they died before this verse came down? Because obviously there's been uh, 15 years since the beginning of the message and it's been probably at least four to five years since Salah has been made obligatory, right? Or maybe three, we don't know exactly when as we know Isra and Mi'raj is a big difference when exactly it occurred. Between five to three years people have been praying. There have been a number of people that have died. At least we know of at least 10 people that have died. Uh, natural deaths in this time because there is no battle. So the Sahaba said, O Messenger of Allah, how about those people who died and they never faced in the right direction? They're always facing Baytul Maqdis. Will Allah accept their salah? Will Allah accept their salah? At this Allah revealed in the Quran, again, this is in the same series of verses. وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُضِيعَ إِيمَانَكُمْ وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُضِيعَ إِيمَانَكُمْ Allah will never cause your faith to be wasted away. Allah will never cause your faith to be wasted away. Now this verse was a primary evidence of many of our classical scholars when they talked about a theological issue and that is the status of Salah. The status of Salah. And Imam Ahmad and many of the classical scholars were of the opinion that Salah, praying, is a necessary part of being a Muslim. It's not a luxury. It's a requirement of being a Muslim. And this was their main evidence, always. وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُضِيعَ إِيمَانَكُمْ Why? Because they said the question was about, will Allah accept their salah? And Allah revealed, Allah will never cause your iman to go to waste. Even Imam al-Bukhari, by the way, in his Sahih, Imam al-Bukhari has a chapter heading and he's about this and he says, so Allah called their salah their iman, which means that if they didn't have salah, they wouldn't have iman. Right? And this is uh, a standard position and Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Qayyim, many of the classical scholars uh, mention this, that salah is a necessary requirement 
of being a Muslim, not a luxury, not something if you do it, you're good, if you don't do it, you're bad. No, it is a necessary requirement and this is a detailed theological discussion which we don't have time for now, but you should be aware of it and this is the verse that is used primarily. Of course, by the way, there's at least Ibn al-Qayyim wrote a whole book about this hukmu tariq salah and he mentioned 22 verses that he mentioned and then dozens of ahadith. Um, uh, the, the verse that is used is If the pagans repent and pray and give zakah, then they are Muslims. And of the Masood al-Muddathir, uh, when the angels ask, How did you end up in Jahannam? The number one thing they say, they were, We weren't of those who used to pray. And Allah mentions those who are going to hell, فَلَا صَدَّقَ وَلَا صَلَّى He never gave charity nor did he ever pray. And Allah mentions, وَإِذَا قِيلَ لَهُمْ رَكَعُوا لَا يَرْكَعُونَ When they are told to prostrate, to do ruku' they don't do ruku' uh, And Allah Azza wa Jal says, وَأَقِمِ الصَّلَاةَ وَلَا تَكُونُوا مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ Establish the salah and don't be amongst the pagans. What an, what an interesting combination here, right? Establish the salah and don't be amongst the pagans or be like the pagans. Which means salah is... Opposite to being a mushrik, right? And we go on and on, that's a whole different tangent, but you should be aware that there's a controversy in medieval Islam, what is the status of salah, and uh, many of the scholars, and this is a position that I also very strongly hold, uh, say that salah is a necessary part of being a Muslim. A Muslim has to have some relationship with salah. He must be or she must be praying some time or some relationship, must be prostrating to Allah Azza wa Jal, or else uh, if there is abandonment of salah, the Prophet said, Hadith is in Sahih Muslim, Man taraka salata faqad kafar. Hadith is in Sahih Muslim. Man taraka salah. Whoever abandons the salah, whoever has nothing to do with the salah, this person is simply not a Muslim, he's a kafir. These are the words of the Prophet and this has been uh, a position throughout our ummah and it seems to have a lot of, of support uh, to this. Even the fact that Sahaba were so worried, how are they going to enter Jannah if they're not praying in the right direction? But Allah said, look, I told them to pray in that direction, I will accept their faith. And Allah therefore testified to the salah as being their faith. Anyway, back to the story here. That's the tangent, theological tangent, which maybe one day we'll talk about uh, in more detail. Uh, the story. The Prophet there's a common myth that he was praying one day and Jibreel came down and told him to pray the other way. So he turned around and the whole masjid turned around. This is a myth. This is not true. In fact... This is a confusion later on that took place. The authentic reports are very clear. And that is that the Prophet prayed Fajr, praising, uh, facing Jerusalem, and then he prayed Dhuhr facing Mecca. So the commandments came down in the early morning. The commandment came down in the early morning. And when it came down, the Prophet announced that the change of Qibla has occurred in his masjid. And so, what used to be the front of the masjid became the back of the masjid. And the Prophet then went to what was the back, and from henceforth it became the front until he passed away. Now, those people who prayed dhuhr in the masjid, they went back to their homes. And one of them reached the famous masjid that we now call Masjid Qiblatayn. And this masjid was the masjid of the tribe of Banu Salama. Banu Salama. 
Masjid Qiblatayn, by the way, is right outside my own alma mater, the University of Medina. It's walking distance from Masjid Qiblatayn. If you're at Masjid Qiblatayn, there's a roundabout there. You turn left at the roundabout. That's where my university, where I studied for 10 years, is over there. It's literally right behind the Masjid Qiblatayn. The Masjid Qiblatayn was the tribe of Banu Salama. Now, the Sahabi prayed Dhuhr in the process of his Masjid and he strolled back, maybe he did some other errands. By the time he got back home, they were already praying Asr. So when he saw them praying Asr, he was shocked because he wanted to get there before to tell them. But they're in the middle of the prayer. So he cried out from the back of the masjid that, O oh people of the masjid, I have just come from the Prophet's masjid and I prayed with him Zuhr and he was praying facing Mecca. The command has come to pray facing Mecca. So this was the masjid, Masjid Qiblatayn, not the Prophet the Imam of that masjid and the Sahaba in that masjid, and they're all Sahaba. That was the masjid where they turned around and the Imam walked straight through the entire Sufuf and the, everybody basically turned around where they were, right? And that's why it was called Masjid Qiblatayn. Okay, that's why it's called Masjid Qiblatayn. It was not uh, something the Prophet himself did. Uh, by the way, I wish I could go over this whole page of Surah Al-Baqarah, it's very important, but we don't have time for this. But one more ayah that is very relevant for this whole section, and you all know this ayah. It came down smack in the middle of the verses of Qibla. وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَاكُمْ أُمَّةً وَسَطًا أُمَّةً وَسَطًا This is how we have made you a wasat ummah. This is a famous verse, everybody knows it, right? Ummat and wasat, the phrase. The context of this verse is what? Qibla. The context of this verse, Allah Azza wa Jal mentions ummat and wasatan in the context of the Qibla. وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَاكُمْ أُمَّةً وَسَطًا The meaning of wasat, by the way, a lot of people misunderstand. The meaning of wasat is commonly thought to be the middle, the moderate. In fact, this is the secondary meaning. It is valid, it's not invalid. It's a secondary meaning. There is a primary meaning of wasat. The, the, the ultimate meaning of wasat. And here the wasat means, uh, technically, classically, the term wasat actually meant the highest. Believe it or not, wasat meant the highest. Uh, so the mountain, like you would say that the, the, the pinnacle, because the mountain goes like this, let's say, right? So you would say the wasat of the mountain, meaning the highest, but the highest also for the mountain is usually the middle, right? So the original meaning of wasat is actually the highest or the pinnacle. And therefore, wasat also means not just highest in stature, highest in excellence, highest in character, highest in honesty. And Allah uses the term in the Qur'an primarily for this meaning, right? Uh, uh, what is the verse? قَالَ أَوْسَطُهُمْ أَلَمْ أَقُلْ لَكُمْ لَوْلَا تُسَبِّحُونَ Right? The, not the middle one amongst them. Not the middle one. قَالَ أَوْسَطُهُمْ This is the story of the garden in Surah Noon. وَالْقَلَمِ مَا يَسْطُرُونَ Right? The story of the garden. And the ones who wanted to protect their garden from the beggars. I gave a khutbah about this a few months ago, right? The ones who wanted to protect the garden from the beggars. It's not the middle one said, why didn't you thank Allah? Not the middle one. No, the wisest one. The best one, right? The most knowledgeable one. Not the middle one here. So therefore, ummatan wasata, primarily it means 
the best nation. It means the most excellent nation. Secondarily, it means wasat in the sense that it's not two extremes. Yes, this is also a valid meaning, but not the primary meaning. The primary meaning is you are the pinnacle of all nations. And it's the perfect time to demonstrate this because you're not going to face the Qibla of the Yehud, you're not going to face the Qibla of the Nasara. We have given you the best Qibla. Ummatan wasata here means the best direction and that is the uh, Qibla of Mecca, which is the original Qibla of mankind. Now, when the Prophet ﷺ turned the Qibla in his own masjid, and the back became, the, well that is the back, the back became the front, right? Uh, whatever was the back became the front. The Prophet ﷺ then commanded that the back of the masjid, which used to be the front, be covered up by a shade. And this covering up, the Masjid of the Prophet did not have a roof until probably the 4th, 5th year of the Hijrah. Remember this point, I told you this. When the Prophet built the Masjid, it was no roof. Can you imagine if we had a Masjid today with no roof, right? Can you imagine the, the problems that would happen? Sun, uh, the heat of Medina, when it rained, it would be no, uh, no covering. Eventually, they put a roof of date palms, as we said, but it was not waterproof. And even in the 6th, 7th year of the Hijrah, it rained in Ramadan and the Prophet was praying and the whole floor was mud. And he lowered his head straight into the mud for sajda. Right? And Anas said, Wallahi, I saw the mud on his f uh, face and his nose when he went into the sand. So up until much later on, then the roof finally became watertight. But in the time of the Prophet uh, it remained uh, at the end. They put, uh, they put the, the date palm leaves. In the beginning, there was nothing. The Prophet ordered that the, the, what used to be the front be covered up. Why? Because the number of people who were emigrating to Medina became too much to absorb by the people of Medina. So they needed a shelter. You see, the first batch of immigrants, every one of them was given a household. And the household basically adopted him for a while, took care of him until he got his own feet and then sent him his way. Right? However, as the number of converts and the number of muhajirun and the number of people coming increased, the Prophet could not handle all of them. So what happened? A public shelter was built. And the shelter became known as the suffa. The, the shelter became known as the suffa. And the people who remained there and, and lived there became ahl suffa The people of the uh, suffa. And the people of the Sufa have a special status in our uh, Sira books. They have entire chapters uh, dedicated to them. Uh, and the reason for this is because their knowledge and their piety and their taqwa are exemplary. They are, in many cases, the elite of the Sahaba. And that is because the people of the Sufa had given up everything and they're living basically in a public shelter. They're living in the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ with nothing because they gave it all up for the sake of Islam. By the way, as we said, the Sufa did not begin until probably after Badr. Right? So remember, the Sufa is built probably around Ramadan. Badr takes place in Ramadan. So the concept of Ahl al-Sufa begins after Ramadan. Right? Up until Ramadan, every convert that comes, he can be accommodated. Every muhajir that comes, he can be accommodated. But eventually the Sahaba are saturated. Eventually the houses that can cater for multiple people, not every house can cater multiple people, right? Not everybody can take on a guest. Those who could are saturated. So what is to be done? That was when the Sufa was built. And so the Prophet 
spent a lot of uh, energy and a lot of dedication on the people of the Sufa, and there are many narrations about uh, the problems and the difficulties that they faced, so much so that many of the people of the Sufa did not even have proper clothes to wear. So much so that there's actually an embarrassing hadith about this, but it shows you how poor they were. That the Prophet ﷺ, he had to make a general commandment to the women. That he said, O women, do not raise your heads up from sajda until some time has gone. Because the people of the Sufa, when they went into sajda, their aura would be exposed. Yani they didn't even have enough of what we would call basically even shorts. They didn't even have that. I mean, that's how poor they were. Such that when they went into sajda, obviously, whatever they're wearing is going to be exposed from the back. And so there is hadith in Bukhari, the process of telling the women, do not raise your heads up until the men have stood up completely. That's how little clothes the people of the Sufa had. And this is why the Prophet ﷺ gave many a hadith about taking care of the people of the Sufa. When his own grandchild was born at Hassan, he told Fatima that, O oh, Fatima, Give some charity to the people of the Sufa. Uh, some years later, when the Prophet got a whole batch of, of prisoners of war who were going to become slaves, Fatima came complaining to the, her own father and said that, Ya Abati, I, 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 I have so much housework to do. And, you know, Ali does, you know, typical, even though they were Ali, but still father-in-law, son-in-law, they're all the same. It's all, subhanAllah, the fitra of, of human beings is the same, right? So she's complaining that Ali has so much housework that I have to do. Can't you give me a servant? You just had a whole batch of people come to you, right? They're all going to be slaves. Give me, gift me one. Subhanallah, what did the Prophet do? He got irritated. And he said, how can I give you a servant when the people of the Sufa, their stomachs are, what's a good word here, just uh, collapsed. They have nothing to eat. And you want me to give you a servant? No, by Allah, I will sell all of them and spend the money on them. Subhanallah. This is what uh, he's telling his own daughter, his daughter who's the most beloved flesh to him. He loves no one more than he loves Fatima, right? Imagine the people of our times, the rich, the dictators, these people, how much they give to their own family. They'll kill people to give to their family, right? Our Prophet ﷺ, he got irritated, he said, you want me to give you when the people of the Sufa don't even have enough to eat? And he refused. And so Aisha never, I mean Fatima never once asked him uh, for any servant after that. Even though he is supposed to be the leader here, but no, no privilege just because you're related to me, I have to take care of everybody, right? And so the people of the Sufa is on his mind. Every time some type of event happened, he would invite the people of the Sufa. And it is narrated uh, the famous and the, the semi-humorous tradition of Abu Huraira. That Abu Huraira was, uh, of course, Abu Huraira is the most famous inhabitant of the Sufa. Abu Huraira is the most famous person of the Ahl al-Sufa. And Abu Huraira tells us uh, how hungry he used to be and, and what not. Uh, in fact, Abu Huraira says that uh, many times, Abu Huraira is narrating this, that many times I would ask a companion a question when he went out of the masjid. And wallahi, I knew the answer better than him. But the only reason I'm asking is to drag out the conversation until I get to his doorstep. Perhaps he might invite me in for a meal. <laughs> Subhanallah. This is what Abu Ray is telling us in Sahih Bukhari. Like I'm asking Sahaba question, walking with them to drag out a response, right? 
just hoping to get to the doorstep so that they say, Yalla, Bismillah, tafaddal, you know, the karam of the generosity that we're supposed to have. Come on, Bismillah. He's too, he's too embarrassed to beg, obviously, right? He doesn't want to beg. So he's simply asking a question to walk with them. This is Abu Huraira, right? Uh, uh, Abu Huraira is the one who narrates that once the Prophet saw me uh, so hungry that I was weak with exhaustion, lying down in the sofa, weak with exhaustion. And so uh, he invited me to his house with him. And he asked Aisha, is there anything to eat or drink? And so Aisha said, yes, one of the neighboring Ansar has given us a glass of milk. And this is a big glass. They had a little glass of milk, right? Abu Huraira became happy, mashamdulillah, glass of milk. The Prophet said to Abu Huraira, Go and call the people of the Sufa. Abu there's like 30, 40 people there, right? Abu Huraira is narrating the hadith that that I had to obey the command. He's not saying I wanted to. I had to obey the command. That I went and I gathered together all the people of the Sufa. And they came to the Prophet And the Prophet handed me the cup and said, Go to every one of them. And give them the cup, right? You will be their, their servant, serving them. So I went to every one of them giving the cup and I thought to myself, what will be left for me? What's the point? I mean, he really felt like, you know, he's going to be fainting from exhaustion and this is torture now. Until it finished, every single one of them finished. Until finally, there was only me and the Prophet left who had not uh, drank from that cup. So the Prophet said, Ijlis. So I sat down. So he told me, Ishrab. Drink. So I, and the cup, he said, was brimming as if, as if it was more than when he handed it to me. As if it was more than we had to me. So I drank. And then he said, Ishrab, drink again. So I drank. He said, Ishrab. The process of knows exactly this is, well, if, the, if I could call this a practical joke, I would, but it is a type of joke. It is a type of playing with Abu Huraira that he's just taking it out on him that you think I'm not going to take care of you Abu Huraira? You think I'm going to let you, you know, starve when you're the one doing this? So he said, He kept on telling me, Ishrab, 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 until I said, Wallahi, O Messenger of Allah, there's not a single space left in my stomach that I have left for this milk, right? Then after all of these 30, 40 people had drunk, the Prophet took the cup, the last, and then he drank from it. This is Ahl Sufa, right? And of course, we already said that the ahl sufa uh, were uh, uh, people whom the Prophet um, would always be concerned about. Like we just said, one cup of milk and he wants to give it to the people of the sufa. And it is said that uh, one of the sahaba and he came up with uh, an idea and he said, why not anytime we get some food or some, uh, we harvest some dates, we give a little bit of it to the people of the Sufa. And they said, this is a great idea, the Prophet approved. So a string was hung between the two pillars of the Sufa. And anytime uh, the, the Ansar would harvest some dates, they would send the first batch, the first bit that the dates, they would send it and they would put it on this string. They would put it on the string uh, so that the people could eat without having to beg for it. And by the way, this string or this custom of having this lasted up until this century. Up until basically uh, the 40s and 50s. Some of my elder teachers tell me that this was something, it was well known up until the 40s and 50s that there was a string that food would be put on it for those who couldn't afford. So the custom of basically being generous in the process of the masjid, it lasted for literally 
12th, 13th centuries up until modernity, and then now in modernity they don't have that. Of course, this is not done uh, anymore, uh, but it was uh, up until a recent time. Uh, I already said that the most famous inhabitant of the Sufa was Abu Huraira, and Abu Huraira deserves a few minutes of our attention, especially uh, because of who he is. Abu Huraira, of course, his name is Abdurrahman ibn Sakhr. Abdurrahman ibn Sakhr al-Dawsi from Yemen. Abu Huraira is not from Mecca, Medina, he's from Yemen. And Abu Huraira came uh, to Medina after the Battle of Khaybar, i.e. after the seventh year of the Hijrah. And yet he is the number one narrator of Hadith. He is the number one narrator of Hadith. And he narrated so many Ahadith that even some of the next generation said, how can Abu Hurairah know so much when the, some of the Sahaba are longer companions than him? Even the next generation began questioning, how could Abu Hurairah narrate so many traditions when there's Abu Bakr and Umar, there's Uthman Ali, there's all of these people there. And Abu Hurairah explained himself how this is the case. That Abu Hurairah said, the hadith is in Bukhari and Muslim, the people are complaining that I narrate too many ahadith. But were it not for the fact that Allah has criticized those who withhold knowledge, Allah criticizes those who withhold knowledge, right? Were it not for this fact, I would not have narrated one hadith to you. It's because I have to narrate. And then he said, and I will tell you why I know more than our brothers of the Muhajirun and the Ansar. He said, as for the Muhajirun, they were busy throughout the day buying and selling in the souks of Medina. And as for the Ansar, they were busy in the cultivation and the field and harvesting. And as for me, then I would stick to the Prophet ﷺ with my hungry stomach. They would be busy with the world. I would stick to him with my hungry stomach. And therefore, I would memorize what they would not memorize. And by the way, Abu Huraira was not poor. Abu Huraira was from what we would call the middle class family. We know this because eventually his mother who was in uh, Yemen, because she was, uh, that was her only son, she moved to Medina, even though she was a pagan. She moved to Medina and she purchased a house in Medina. Abu Huraira still did not go into that house and he remained in the Sufa. Why? And this shows us what is the status of the Sufa and why the Sufa is so important. The Sufa not only was a shelter, it became the first university of Islam. Abu Huraira was living in the dormitory of the university of the Prophet He preferred to stay there over his own mother's house. Why? Because the Prophet is in the masjid more than he is in his own house, right? His masjid is attached to the house, his house is attached to the masjid. Everything takes place in the masjid. Anytime he comes out, it's in the masjid. So Abu Huraira basically sticks to the masjid, and by sticking to the masjid, he is able to be with the Prophet And Abu Huraira, uh, now some of the mystical groups, they read in Sufa, uh, as basically tasawwuf, by the way. They say that the term Sufi comes from Sufa. This is not true. The term Sufi comes from wool. Suf, right? It's not from Sufa. Ahl uh, Sufa means the people of the shelter. Uh, but they read this in, uh, SubhanAllah, even Abu Huraira's life is against this. Why? Because Abu Huraira eventually became the governor of Bahrain. And he lived a, a good life in the end. 
when he was like in his 50s. So Islam doesn't prohibit you from living a decent life. But at this time he gave it up for the sake of knowledge. At this time he wanted to live a difficult life in order to gain that uh, knowledge. And even some of the uh, Ansar moved into the Sufa. And this shows us the Sufa wasn't just a free shelter. Some of the Ansar, uh, the most famous of them is Hanzala. Hanzala has the famous story of, what is Hanzala called? Nafaqa Hanzala and what else? Washed by the angels. Hanzala is the one washed, Ghasilul Malaika he's called, right? Ghasilul Malaika. Hanzala is an Ansari. He has a house. He's still living in the uh, Sufa. Also, uh, Ka'b ibn Malik al-Ansari. What's the story of Ka'b? Who can remind me? Ka'b ibn Malik. Tabuk, the battle of Tabuk, not Khaybar, Tabuk. The battle of Tabuk, that he was one of those Right, this is Ka'b ibn Malik, he's an Ansari, he's also a member of the Sufa. So many of the other Ansar are members of the Sufa. What does this show us? The Sufa isn't a freeloading shelter, astaghfirullah. The Sufa is not just, no, the Sufa is primarily a place of learning. Yes, those who don't have anything, they will come to the Sufa. But many of them, when they came, they just decided to stick it out. Because it's just too good. The Prophet is always there. And you can benefit from him. So some of the Ansar leave their houses, move into the Sufa. Uh, Abu Dhar al-Ghifari, Bilal, uh, Suhaib al-Rumi, Bilal ibn Rabah, uh, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, all of these are of course uh, Muhajirun. Uh, they moved into the Sufa even though they could have had place to live. But they decided to stick it out over there. And therefore the people of the Sufa became legendary amongst the Muslims amongst the Sahaba for being the best of them. The most in memorization of the Quran, the most in tahajjud, the most in knowledge, uh, in every single major battle amongst the top of the shuhada are the people of the Sufa. Beginning with Badr, there's one or two who are actually, it seems like Sufa was instituted maybe a week or two before Badr. It seems as if there was one or two, because there are people that are mentioned as being both Sufa and Badri, which means that there were then, the, the rudiments of the Sufa began around Badr time. Uhud, Ahzab, uh, the, the, the battle of Khandaq, uh, um, the Khaybar, I mean, the battle of Khaybar, uh, conquest of Mecca, the battle of Ridda, the wars of Ridda. So many of the people of Sufa died, that Umar ibn al-Khattab wanted to compile the Qur'an because the people of Sufa died. Think about the status of Sufa then and how it's associated with the Qur'an. The reason why the Qur'an is compiled, Allah Azza wa willed it of course, but the reason why is what? So many of the people of Sufa died. Do you all know the story about the, the compilation of the Qur'an? The, in the wars of Ridda with the... Uh, Abu Bakr sending out to Musaylam al-Kathab in particular, uh, many of the memorizers of the Qur'an died. Many of them from the Sufa. And of course, the Sufa is, wasn't a permanent university. With the death of the Prophet the Sufa, that's it, it finished. So the graduates of the Sufa are limited in number. In the battle uh, against Musaylam, the wars of Ridda, the Hurub al-Ridda, large numbers of them, in one report it says more than 70 of them, were killed. And that's a huge number uh, for them. And so Umar went to Abu Bakr and said, Ya Abu Bakr, we have lost many of our Qurra, many of the people of the Sufa. And they were all memorizers of the Quran. The people of the Sufa are associated with the Quran. And I'm worried that unless you do something, if more of the Qurra die, we won't have the Quran. 
Because remember, at that time, the Mus'haf had not been compiled completely. And so Abu Bakr basically agreed to compile the Qur'an, primarily because the people of Suffa died. A large group of them. That shows us the status of the people of the uh, Suffa. And uh, one final point that we'll mention, inshallah, we have an announcement to make where is Brother Ali is here. He asked me for some time at the end. Not here. He's outside. Okay. Uh, he wants some time for, for announcements. Uh, one final point that we'll mention. Uh, oh, by the way, how many people were in the people were in the Suffa? Of course, the people of Suffa were always moving up and down quantity-wise. At times there were 5 or 10. At times there were up to 70. So the people of Suffa kept on varying. And most of them would stay for a week or two, a few months. Uh, anytime a delegation came and they didn't have a house to stay, they would stay in the Suffa. It is reported that sometimes towards the end of the life of the Prophet people would come just to learn Islam. People were from the far villages, the far Bedouin places, they have to learn the Qur'an and learn the fiqh and learn how to pray and go back to their people. Well, the Sufa became their university. The Sufa became the place to stay. Ibn Mas'ud says, anytime somebody came to us, the Prophet would assign one of us to the newcomer to teach him the Qur'an and Salah. Right? So, the university is formed basically to teach the people and that is the Sufa. We would teach him and then he would go back to his people. All of this is taking place in the Sufa and the Sufa remained up until the time of the Prophet ﷺ's death. And then of course after this, uh, the Sufa did not retain that status that it used to retain. So initially then therefore, before we move on, one final uh, story and then we'll move on. Uh, the covering of the Prophet ﷺ was only at the back of the masjid for the people of the Sufa. And this shows us he prioritized them over even the regular Musallin. Because the regular Musallin did not have a roof for many years. But he was more concerned about them because they're living in the masjid. Whereas the rest of the people are just coming and going away. So the first roof to be built was actually the roof of the people of the Sufa. By the way, as for the... Uh, the uh, raised platform in our time, you all know uh, that if you go to the Prophet Masjid, there's a raised platform in the back of it, right? And they say that is the uh, place of the Sufa. In fact, it appears that the Sufa was ahead of this point, not at that particular point, right? Uh, and also the Sufa was not a raised platform as well. This is another one of those myths. The Sufa was at the same level as the ground. It wasn't raised up. There's no reason to raise it up. The sofa was at the same level as the ground. Uh, and so this is just a myth that when you go to the haram, people say, this is where the sofa was. No, that's not the case. That's just a modern construction. Uh, one final story, and then inshallah, there's an announcement to be made. Uh, interesting story, not related to the sofa, but it just shows us uh, the reality of the fitrah or the human uh, inclination that we learned that around this time, one of the most elder elderly people of Medina converted to Islam and his name was Sirma. Sirma, strange name. His name was Sirma. And Sirma was the only Hanif that we have authentically narrated from the time of Medina. Who can remind me what's a Hanif? We go back many months. Yes, in the back. So what, is he, what has a Hanif done? They, 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 were not pagans. they had abandoned idolatry. And they said they're going to worship upon the religion of Ibrahim, even though they don't know what it is, but we're going to be a Hanif. We mentioned some Hanifs in Mecca, five or ten. We didn't mention any in Medina. The only, now we're not saying there weren't any more, but the one that we have recorded was Sirma. So Sirma was of the Hanifs of Medina, 
of Yathrib. And it is narrated that uh, when he, the Prophet came, he was over a hundred years old. One of the oldest people of Medina. When he was a young man, so this is even before the birth of the Prophet then. When he was a young man, he had, just like the Hunafa of Mecca, openly rejected the idolatry of the people of Medina. And he had decided to accept Christianity, but then right before he converted, he said, no, Christianity doesn't make any sense either. I'm just going to be upon the, uh, the ways of Ibrahim And so he remained praying in his own way. And Ibn Ishaq mentions that, in fact, he would also perform ghusl uh, after Janaba, and he would even tell his women to take a bath after their menses, which means he had some idea of the Sharia of Ibrahim. He still is following that uh, Sharia. And uh, he will say that he used to say to the people, I will not worship your gods, I will worship the Lord of Ibrahim, which is exactly what the Hunafa said in Mecca. And Ibn Ishaq mentions a lot of poetry from him, which we don't have the time or even the skill to translate, uh, where he's praising uh, Hanifiyyah, he's praising worshipping Allah, he's criticizing uh, the idols. And he stayed amongst the Quraysh. In Mecca, before the coming of the Prophet for many years, but he didn't find what he wanted there, so he returned back and he became a Hanif. When the Prophet emigrated, he was still alive the very last few weeks or months of his life, and Allah Azza wa blessed him to convert, and then he passed away shortly afterwards. And these are one of those beautiful stories, we don't have much more information, right? But it's one of those beautiful stories that for 120 years, they said, he was waiting for the truth. And it is as if literally Allah SWT just gave him that, just that brief meeting with the Prophet right towards the last year of his life basically. So as if Allah stretched his life out, waiting for the truth to come to him because he was that sincere. And he got the blessing of being a Sahabi, so he's mentioned as a Sahabi, he got the blessing of being uh, of those who accepted Islam, and he died a natural death of old age before any battle, before anything. And really we have no other information about him, but it's one of those stories that is beautiful in its own way, and it shows us that those who are sincere, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bless them in that sincerity. Uh, next week we'll talk about the prelude to the Battle of Badr and what happened before the Battle of Badr, working up our way to the Battle of Badr. Next Wednesday will be our final Sierra class for the summer. Uh, I will be then traveling and then coming back end of June or 1st of July. And then we'll have some talks about the Ramadan because Ramadan is going to be uh, second week of July basically. So uh, next week is the final week of Sirah for the summer. Then we will resume Sirah after Ramadan. Before Ramadan we'll have a few classes about Fiqh of Ramadan and whatnot. Insha'Allah ta'ala. Any questions before we hand it over to Brother Ali? Yes. The majority of Ahl al-Suffa did not have their families. Those who were married voluntarily decided to live in the Suffa. People like Abu Huraira decided not to get married while they were in the Suffa. So we have Ibn Mas'ud, we have others who had families, but they're voluntarily remaining in the Suffa because they want the suhba of the Prophet ﷺ, they want the companionship of the Prophet ﷺ. Of course, the suhba was for men only. You cannot have women, you know, sleeping in the masjid like this. It was for men only. And so the priority uh, uh, for those men was to learn Islam. Most of the people of the suhba were there temporarily. Most of them. Some of them decided to become permanent. And the most famous amongst them was Abu Hurairah. Okay? Bismillah. 
I'm studying this issue, so I'm not 100 percent sure on uh, the obligation. Um, do you have an example? Because I don't think the Sunna can obligate the Quran. The other way, that's only you know for that logic. The Quran can obligate the Quran. Sunna can obligate Sunna. Quran can obligate Sunna. Not the Sunna obligates Quran. The issue of Sunnah abrogating the Quran uh, is one that goes back to اختلاف العلماء في المذاهب. The four madhahib have different opinions about this. The position that you are saying was held by one of the famous imams uh, and it is a legitimate opinion. Uh, but the other, uh, their Imam Ahmad and others allowed the Sunnah even to abrogate the Quran. So there is the example of لا وصية لوارث لا وصية لوارث this is يُصِيكُمُ اللَّهُ فِي أَوْلَادِكُمْ That uh, Allah Azza wa Jal says, no, not يُصِيكُمُ اللَّهُ Surah Al-Baqarah. When death comes to you, then write your wasiyah. Right? And it was meant for the warith. Yani when the ayah came down, it was meant for the warith. Because this was before Nisa was revealed. Then Nisa was revealed and it didn't technically abrogate that ayah. Then the Prophet, because it's just a combination, you can still have the wasiyah and you can still have these shares. Nowhere does the Quran say, La wasiyata liwarith. Right? So you could put both of these together and say, Okay, the Quran has one eighth for my wife. I want to be generous. MashaAllah, give her another 10%. You see, that is possible if you take only the Quran. But the Prophet said, La wasiyata liwarith. Right? So this is the example that is given by Imam Ahmad. This is ikhtilaf al madahib. وقولك هذا قول إمام الشا قول الإمام الشافعي رحمه الله تعالى وخالفه في ذلك بعض الأئمة منهم الإمام أحمد. The majority of Sunni scholars consider this ayah to be the primary ayah of Nasr. Hatta Ibn Abbas anhu hadha. The Shia and the Mu'tazila have ta'wilat of this ayah. And of their ta'wilat is actually what you are saying. That ayah doesn't mean ayah over here. As for, and so you have to realize this is a theological issue. Ahlu sunnah ajma'u ala jawazi al-nasq, bal laysa faqat ala jawazi, ba'ala wuqu'ihi. This is ijma' fi ahlu sunnah, right? Khalafun fi hadha al-mu'tazila wa al-shwi'a kulluhum. They said there is no nasq. And the main evidence that they used is this ayah of Surah Al-Baqarah. You always ask questions, I don't mind, but you give us into other topics. Yes, ayat of the Quran have been forgotten by Allah Azzawajal's command. Nunsiha. There are a number of ayat uh, that, and again you're getting, this is perhaps not best to talk about now. But come to me after salah, but yes, there are authentic hadith that a number of Sahaba forgot ayat simultaneously in one night. And they all came to the house of the Prophet and they asked him what happened, we couldn't recite it last night. And the Prophet said that uh, Allah Azza wa took it up last night. This is authentically narrated. Okay, Musnad Imam Ahmed. Uh, final question, sisters, any questions? Yes, in the back, go ahead. Did you ask that you said that there was a war in Mecca and uh, Hanifiyah, Ibrahimi, uh, you know, religion was in Medina. 
even though Ibrahim told the Kaaba, so why it was like that? No, 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 I think you misunderstood. I said there were more Yehud in Medina. So there were more Abrahamic people, right, in Medina. Because the people of Mecca did not allow, basically, there were no Jews and Christians living in Mecca. There were no Jews and Christians living in Mecca. As for Medina, we already mentioned three, four weeks ago, that in fact the Yehud were the ones who first settled there. Then the Aus and the Khazraj came. So the whole dynamics was different in Medina. So there were more, I didn't say more Hunafa, more Hunafa were in Mecca. More Hunafa were in Mecca. But more Ahli Kitab were in Medina. Inshallah.